Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. we got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking to Cliff Nesteroff. Cliff is a fan of American comedy. He has a brand new book called The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. It's packed with anecdotes from his blog. Right there, Cliff has an archive of a lot of one-on-one oral history interviews, much like Word Balloon, with hundreds of comedy performers and behind-the-scenes participants. And really, even at his blog at uh, Classic Television Showbiz, uh, dot blogspot.com. There's a link right on wordballoon.com. You are going to find hours of reading there. But in our conversation, we're talking about uh, Cliff's book, which really is this 100-year history of American stand-up comedy, from vaudeville to uh, today's alt-comedy scene with the podcasts that are done across the country. Uh, we're talking about uh, the first stand-ups to Louis C.K. and Mark Marin. Uh, we're going to look at uh, different subjects, including the creation of the 20th Century Comedy Album that you could say started in the 1950s with Red Fox, uh, the coffee house scene uh, that created such people as Nicholson May and Lenny Bruce and Jonathan Winters and leading to their spiritual successors, SNL, George Carlin and Robin Williams, the comedy uh, club drug connection of the 70s and 80s. Just lots of really amazing conversation with Cliff Nesteroff talking about the history of comedy on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by not only the League of Word Balloon listeners, and as always, thank you for your support, but uh, here's an opportunity for you folks to uh, help support Word Balloon in a very simple way, and that's through uh, what you likely uh, do anyway, and that's shop at Amazon. Because, uh, you know, Word Balloon is one of uh, the Amazon associates, and if you go to wordballoon.com and go through the Amazon portal there to the Amazon website, uh, you can shop like you always do at Amazon. But the great thing is... Uh, Word Balloon gets a couple cents on the dollar for every purchase you make. It doesn't increase the price in any way. And uh, really, it's just really Amazon shaving off a little bit of their profit and throwing it my way because I brought you to them. So it is holiday season. We talk not only about uh, you know Cliff's great book, The Comedians, which will be right there on the front page of WordBalloon.com, and you can click on it that way, but also some of the other uh, comedy uh, subjects that we bring up during our conversation, or any sort of, uh, you know, Amazon shopping you do, if you go through wordballoon.com first and go to Amazon, you can shop there and help support Wordballoon. Thank you very much for that kind of support. All right, without further ado, I want to start our conversation with uh, Cliff Nesteroff, uh, a great blogger and uh, now an excellent author with his new book, The Comedians. Let's hear about the history of stand-up comedy in America with Cliff Nesteroff, now on Wordballoon. Cliff Nesteroff, welcome to Word Balloon. I was just telling you as uh, we started to record that uh, I am a longtime fan of your blog work, and I heard you on Mark Marin. and when I heard that you were doing this uh, book, I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to read it, and I can't wait to talk to you. So thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you, John, and I appreciate those kind words. Hey, man, uh, no kidding. Longtime fan of your work at WFMU, and uh, you worked on the blog. Were you on the air at all? I never actually was on the air at WFMU. I mean, they're located in uh, Jersey City, and actually they just retired their blog uh, very recently. Like two months ago, they quietly just uh, stopped all posts. They kind of uh, were slowing down the past couple of years and ultimately decided to just kind of end it. All the archives are still online. You can still read all of my stuff on the uh, WFMU website. But uh, when I started working for them, I was living in Vancouver, and now I live in Los Angeles. Whereas everybody who's on the air at WFMU is uh, there in Jersey City. So I never had a show there, and I was never a regular there. Although, coming up on my book tour, I will be uh, probably doing some WFMU stuff. I think I'm 
heard rumor that I'm going to be doing Tom Sharpling's show and maybe a couple others, so we'll see. That's fantastic. I assumed you were in the New York area, given what you cover. And, and it's interesting to learn that you're based in Los Angeles, although that certainly is a, a wonderful place to be to, to meet a lot of uh, comedians and also especially older comedians that are, you know, maybe retired and, and kicking back. Yeah, it's funny. There, I wrote an article three or four years ago called The Sleppers, uh, Stale <laughs> Gags and Stale something. I can't remember what I called it. Stale Gags and Stale Food in Mid-Century Manhattan, I think was the name, but... And then people are like, oh, man, you nailed it. You nailed the vibe of Manhattan. You, you nailed the vibe of Manhattan in the 40s. And uh, I've been there once, like, and it was like 12 years ago. <laughs> so wow, back, okay. So, so I'm going back to New York for the uh, second time ever in my life. I know that's preposterous. You know, I would be more than happy to live there. But I'm only going back there for the second time in my life uh, this fall on my book tour. I'm uh, doing three days there. So, Are, are you going to make it to uh, the Friars Club? Uh, we tried to set something up with the Friars Club, but you know it's it's run by the elderly, and they're not that good with the they're not that good with the email, so they didn't get back to me. But uh, maybe I Jeff Ross could help you, man. Yeah, yeah, he probably could. Uh, uh, Drew Friedman was trying to help me with that, but uh, whoever the contact was there, it uh, ended up being more trouble than it was worth. You know, it's uh, although okay. it would be a nice symbolic thing to do an event at the Friars Club, it's not like it's really going to help help books. Um, but I am doing some other shows in New York and playing Union Hall. Uh, your podcast will probably come out after these uh, dates that happen. I don't know. But uh, mid-November, I'm doing a date there with Robert Smigel. Uh, we're going to show Excellent. rare, uh, uh, never-aired Triumph the Insult comic dog footage, stuff that was uh, too salacious or too controversial to air, and a bunch of other stuff from the Smigel uh, archives. And he's going to join me on stage. There may or may not be a cameo from Triumph himself at the end of the night. But we're doing that in Brooklyn at Union Hall on the 11th to uh, promote my book. Excellent. Are you coming to Chicago at all? You know, it's the weirdest thing. I didn't get booked in Chicago, but I did get booked in uh, Hartford. Makes no sense whatsoever. Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah, I was really looking forward to doing Chicago because there's a great bookstore there called Quimby's. I was like, oh, that would yes, be right up my, right up my uh, uh, demographic, you know? Not up yes, absolutely. You know what I meant. I do. No, uh, I didn't mean to use the phrase up my demographic, but that is cause. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's two places I wanted to get booked. Uh, one was Quimby's in Chicago. The other was Atomic Books in Baltimore. But for some reason, they're not on my uh, publisher's itinerary. Uh, but Hartford, <sighs> of all places, is. But hopefully somebody I'm... in uh, Chicago will request me, and then I would love to uh, come there and do an event for sure. Maybe if, yeah, maybe if they hear the podcast or something, because uh, no, I would I would love for to, to meet you face to face, and also I am really interested as we talk about the book about the Chicago scene, you know, yeah. at Mister Kelly's and all those great uh, nightclubs and supper clubs of of the forties, fifties, and sixties that yeah. really broke so many of these people that are that are in the book. Definitely, and as I'm sure you know, I guess most people in Chicago know know this or. Uh, use it as a sense of pride. It used to be uh, the second largest media market after New York. It was New York and Absolutely. Chicago. It was not New York and Los Angeles as it is now. For years and years and years, it was Chicago and New York. And Chicago was at the forefront of radio, the forefront of television, the forefront of uh, vaudeville, the forefront of nightclubs. So because of that, uh, not only did they produce uh, hundreds of comedians and comic actors, uh, a lot of people who weren't from there also moved there to make their name. So guys like Danny Thomas, who was from Detroit, and Joey Bishop, who was from Philadelphia, uh, and Lenny Bruce, 
they would come to Chicago and they got some of their uh, initial uh, heat and notoriety from that town. And then they moved to New York because they had gotten too big for Chicago. But it used to be a very, very important uh, training ground for so many people. And, uh, I mean, the list was kind of endless of comedians that came out of here, that came out of there from the old school, uh, guys like uh, Shecky Green and uh, Jackie Leonard were from Chicago. And then, of course, in more recent history, it's just this enormous list of uh, Second City uh, uh, legends and now uh, UCB legends. And yes. people like Stephen Colbert, Stephen Carell, uh, Jeff Garland, Tina, Andy Richter, Tina Fey, yeah. Tina Fey yeah, Amy. Shane Lynch, Amy Poehler. Yeah, it's just endless, you got endless it. list. And, of course, going back to the 80s, so much of the SNL cast, and then back to the 70s, so much of the National Lampoon and SNL people, and then there was this Toronto-Chicago connection, like an underground yes. railroad between the two for SCTV. So, uh, I mean, Chicago's comedy history is probably as dense and as rich as uh, any city in America. You know, and I was uh, surprised to learn that you're from Vancouver, and because at first, when I was reading the book... I, I was like, oh, hey, I, I was expecting the kids in the hall to pop up in the 90s, but then this really is a history of American comedy, so right. I, I understand. And 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 you've got Lorne Michaels in there, of course, because he started in Canada, but obviously uh, – and, and you, you tell his Canadian story as yes. it led to him coming yes. to L.A. and New York. So Yeah, Lorne Michael, Michaels is really the only Canadian figurehead – in my book, and I, it was all arbitrary. Uh, it, it is a history of American comedy, and you can write a history of American comedy that goes on for 10,000 pages. Uh, so I just <laughs> arbitrarily decided to leave out anybody from the UK, leave out anybody from Canada. So, you know, there's great, I don't know if those will uh, strike people as great oversights, but the fact that Monty Python isn't in the book, the fact that the kids in the hall aren't in sure. the book is intentional by design. It's not to indicate that they're somehow irrelevant, which is, you know, cannot be further from the truth. It's just a matter of we only have so much space. So Lauren Michaels is in there uh, strictly because he's, to this day, is so influential in American comedy. And I don't write that much about SNL in the book because there's been several uh, Saturday Night Live books, and the Tom yes. Sales Life in New York book is sensational. It's fantastic. You can't do a better job than that. So Agreed. when it came to SNL, I just wrote about all this stuff about Lauren Michaels that none of us know, which is his career from 1965 to 1974. That's where it ends in my book. It's 74 with Lauren Michaels, who just had finished uh, producing a special for Lily Tomlin, which uh, guest starred Richard Pryor, and he won an Emmy for it. And based on the strength of that Lily Tomlin special, he got the green light to do Saturday Night Live. So that's where the story ends in my book, because we know what happens afterwards, and I want to kind of uh, uh, unveil what, uh, what we don't know. I really is really the only Canadian who's really showcased in the book. The only other Canadians that are in there are, I think, I have a couple quotes in there from Norm Macdonald, uh, David Steinberg, and, and maybe a little bit of Rich Little, and that's it. Yeah, no, I and uh, I'm a I'm a fan of all of them, and I, I'm a fan of Canadian comedy in particular. Wait, Certainly, wait, wait, that, wait, that could wait, be the wait, next wait. book. You're a fan of Rich Little. Well, all right, let me qualify that because I'm 50, <laughs> and when I was a little kid. Rich Little uh, was uh, really fun to watch. When and... you were a little kid. Okay, got it. <laughs> you know, it's great. You talk about those Dean Martin celebrity roasts. And yeah. I, dude, there are so many, like, just comedians that you just, oh, yeah, he was good, or whatever. Or you just really think about it, and you're like, oh, no, no, no. Like, Dean Martin celebrity roast. 
those were horrible. And they're fun to watch for all the wrong reasons. And you're like, they're one of the most poorly edited television shows. Yeah. And it's funny because Greg Garrison is one of those guys that, you know, behind the scenes is a big part of American comedy for several decades, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, Greg Garrison is just a Beverly Hills guy with a deep tan, foul mouth, every other word was cocksucker, smoked big cigars, <laughs> wore his gaudy cardigans, you know, flashy cars. Uh, uh, Botox wife, you know, he was he was sort of like a Freddy de, de Cordova or uh, a version of my friend George Slaughter, the creator of Laughing. These old school Hollywood guys, you know, they were on a deadline. They had five days to shoot. They usually had it in the can in four days so they could go golf, you know. So it wasn't they weren't talented. And yes, they were part of the fabric of American comedy uh, television, but they were not exactly artists. You know, they were they they were businessmen. They were in it for the money. They they knew how to how to do it. Um, you know, they were veterans. These guys got in on the ground floor. P.D. Garrison had sure. been producing TV shows since the very early fifties. He had been uh, one of Milton Berle's directors, and he went on to direct the Dean Martin Show and yeah, those celebrity roasts. But he had no uh, 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 concern for quality control. And those Dean Martin roasts, I mean, we all love them. It's, funny how easy it is to sit through uh, the Dean Martin Celebrity Roast infomercial. You know, you can just sit there and watch it for a half hour and be fully entertained. It's an infomercial, for God's sake. I agree. And you, can watch, and you can watch it the same one 20 times for some reason. In fact, they almost work better as an infomercial than to watch the full episode uh, beginning to end. But uh, uh, they're sort of like the Ed Wood equivalent for comedy, <laughs> or the Dean Martin Celebrity Roast uh, that's a very edited. Good comparison. Yeah, they're camp classics. They're camp classics. Yes. And uh, Jimmy Walker is in that book, and Jimmy told me that Greg Garrison would make him sit on a chair at the dais, which was a soundstage, and he would, and uh, there'd be nobody else there. And Garrison, Garrison would say, now laugh. And Jimmy Walker would, like, <laughs> clap his hands and go, ah, ha, ha. And then uh, Garrison, okay, okay, uh, uh, a lighter laugh. Ah, ha, ha. Okay, louder laugh. You know, and they would just go through laughs. And then Jimmy Walker would see these roasts on TV that he had never attended, and he's laughing his ass off at something that uh, Joanne Worley said on the on the podium. You know, it's just a bizarre way of doing things. But uh, you know, everybody watched them, so I guess it didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter how how poor the quality was. The ratings were high. There was only three channels at the time, and for God's sake, they were kind of entertaining, uh, uh, regardless of uh, lack of quality. It's still fun to watch Steve Martin. Uh, do what he would do what he does, and it's fun to watch Red Fox do what he does. And of course, Don Rickles was uh, uh, the saving grace of uh, most of them. But oh, uh, yeah. there's only so many there's only so many times you can listen to a joke delivered by uh, Grizzly Adams or Cyril <laughs> T. Agnew, you know, <laughs> or the mayor of Los Angeles or whatever. And yeah, yeah no, you're yeah. right. And and in fact, its predecessor, the Kraft Music Hall roasts from the late yeah. '60s. You know, I only saw those really because of YouTube uh, in the last couple of years. Yeah, and, um, and okay, and, and, you know, the Groucho Marx stuff was really great because that was like kind of Groucho's last kind of really sharp, closer to you bet your life than slow Groucho on, you know, I mean, his Cavett interviews were great. Yeah. But, yeah. Like, but like you say, you know, David Steinberg, he had that, uh, that rock uh, music show that, right, that Groucho was on. And, Yes, music scene, attaboy. And yes, and you know, you, you know, he's a little slower then, but in that in that craft music hall roast, he's still sharp. The Johnny Carson one, it yeah, was, that one's great. Yeah, 
I think I think uh, Ed Sullivan and uh, Don Rickles were also on that one. Yeah, great. Yes, Ed Jack yeah, and the Jack Benny roast was really good in, the, in that respect as well. Yeah. Yeah, those craft music hall ones were a lot more fun. They didn't seem quite as uh, contrived. Of course, they're mm-hmm. all contrived and scripted, but uh, yeah, the, television. The, yeah, the Dean Martin ones were uh, uh, fake impro- fake improvisation, and the craft music hall ones seem to include some actual improvisation. And uh, yeah, no, they're fun, and it's also most mostly uh, the combination of people that makes it or breaks it. So to see Groucho sitting sure. next to Don Rickles interacting and uh, kind of heckling Alan King when he's at the podium. Like, that stuff's really fun. Yeah, I really enjoy those. Um, there's another uh, uh, television roast, which is, I don't think it's on YouTube uh, uh, yet. Um, I saw it at the uh, Paley Center here in uh, Beverly Hills uh, a couple years ago. It's the very first roast that was ever televised. It's from, I think, 56. And uh, it was a roast of Ed Sullivan, which aired in Ed Sullivan's time slot, where the Ed Sullivan show would usually be. Um, but it's, okay. there's no resemblance to that. I don't think it was done on the same stage, but it's uh, hosted by Jack Carter, uh, and it features uh, Joey Bishop, Jackie Leonard, uh, um, uh, just a, oh, Phil Silvers, a great cast, and it was produced, written, and directed by Nat Hyken, the guy who created wow. the Phil Silver Show and Car 54, Where Are You? And he was considered the greatest comedy writer of the 1950s. And he was the first guy to produce a roast uh, for TV. And it was hosted by Jack Carter, and uh, Ed Sullivan was the man of the hour, and it was uh, uh, quite good. I'm very envious of both uh, the Paley, both Paley Centers because now I guess the New York uh, Museum is now called the Paley Center as well. And isn't there, uh, I've been isn't to... there a Chicago uh, Museum of Television? Yeah, I don't know how much content they share, and it's been oh, a I... while since I've gone to the Chicago one because of it. Uh, I was at the New York one two years ago for uh, something for the Batman Brave and Bold animated show, um, oh, yeah. but. But anyway, the uh, it's funny. Yeah, you mentioned Nat Hyken, your your blog. So your classic television blog. Give people the URL to that. Oh, it's uh, the the website is called Classic Television uh, Showbiz. It's a very uh, old fashioned looking website, and by old fashioned, I don't mean classic showbiz. I mean it looks like it's from like uh, 2002. Uh, <laughs> the style and the aesthetics. So I'm always kind of like uh, embarrassed to even give it out, but it's Classic Showbiz on Blogspot, Classic Showbiz on Twitter, Classic Showbiz on Instagram, and Old Showbiz on Tumblr, because Classic Showbiz is already taken on Tumblr. But uh, okay. you can find me in all those things, and I, I post different things on all all four of those things. But the website you're talking about is Classic Television Showbiz, which is classicshowbiz.blogspot.com. And, uh, and yeah, it features a lot of interviews with old comedians. Every time I interview somebody for an article, or a uh, book in this instance, I leave the raw transcript up there on the website, and there's something like 100 or 200 interviews up there with uh, everybody imaginable from uh, Shecky Green to Sherwood Schwartz to uh, to Gary Muldeer, you know. That's fantastic. But you were saying Nat Hyken. Yes, because I, I enjoyed your, uh, your Nat Hyken. I believe you had an essay on Nat Hyken, but also uh, Joey Ross from Car 54, because yes. he is one of the weirdest success stories of of uh television and sure. you really peeled back i mean just watching him on tv what we saw was weird enough because clearly the guy didn't know how to read cue cards was i mean it was as much fun watching him try to when they'd sing together on car 54 right, not right. be able to sing with the group just goofy stuff like that but then you get into his real history and this guy was just 
one of the the most like slob, disgusting, degenerate. Yeah, he, yeah, he was he was sort of the Charles Bukowski of the sitcom world in that era. And uh, Nat Hiken, the guy who created the Phil Silver Show and Car 54, Where Are You, had this great talent for spinning gold from nothing. Um, he he would cast people based on their grizzled face without regard to how they could uh, deliver lines, but somehow he made it work. And he did this with several people. He did it with Joey Ross, who was in both uh, uh, Phil Silver Show and Car 54. He started in Car 54 with Fred Gwynn, who later became Herman Munster. But on the mm-hmm. Phil Silver Show, he cast him in the second season as like this sloppy mess hall cook with uh, hairy arms, you know, and no hygiene, which was perfect for him because that was <laughs> sort of his motif in real life. But the other people that, that uh, Nat Hiken used were people like uh, the boxer Rocky Graziano, and Graziano's manager, this old mug named Jack Healy, and yeah. uh, the 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 guy who is the basis for Scorsese's Raging Bull, Jake, Jake Lamotta, was used yeah. by Nat Hiken in several shows. And when Nat Hiken produced uh, the Martha Ray Variety uh, series in the fifties, uh, same thing. He used boxers and, and bookies and uh, guys from around uh, Brooklyn that were not actors but putting them in front of the camera and watching them sort of like awkwardly stumble around or, or, or deliver their lines in this sort of labored Damon Runyon style um, created almost a comedy unto itself so it wasn't about what Joey Ross was saying or what the other uh, uh, Phil Silver's uh, slovenly character Maurice Gossfield was, was saying so much as how they were saying it which was usually yep. with this really labored, stilted uh, delivery, but it was both charming and funny in spite of itself. And somehow Nat Hiken knew how to do that, knew how to cast people that would be good, uh, despite the fact they didn't have traditional training. And, and that takes a unique uh, producer to spot that kind of uh, uh, charm that's going to resonate with the public. So Nat Hiken was not just a great writer. He was a brilliant, brilliant casting director. Absolutely. And, you know, there was that uh, documentary about Hollywood casting and how it changed in the 50s and 60s. And you went away from that pretty boy Hollywood classic style to more real, real people. And that's where the Mathows and the Dustin Hoffmans came from. And as you say, Hiken was doing it uh, for sitcoms. And it's great um, that even, you know, uh, about 15 years later on a show like Barney Miller, some of those character actors would show up that used to be on car 54 or on Bilko and everything. And it was, it was great to see these people because they are, they're just weird, you know, very, very normal, natural people. They are not Hollywood, you know, dream boats and stuff. They're just regular people. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I never, I never saw the, uh, the casting uh, documentary. I heard about it. I'm sure they did not mention that hiking in it. Um, no, it was, was no pure but that's movies, a, but that's a very good uh, point. He was kind of the precursor to those people that started coming out of the actor's uh, studio who were maybe not the traditional pretty boy. I'd never really thought of that, but uh, that's definitely true. Um, Nat Hiken's style was the antithesis of the rest of 1950s television. So not just casting, but the whole demeanor of the Phil Silver show is so much more cynical and uh, human than the other sitcoms of that era. So the other big sitcoms of that era, you have uh, I Love Lucy, Father Knows Best, Ozzy and Harriet. And then here you have the Phil Silver show, and the protagonist is a is a guy who's a woman chaser and a gambler and a liar, and he wants to do anything other than work. Um, and that is really, there's no other sitcom of that era that went in that direction. They're all almost exclusively in the opposite direction. Even the Honeymooners, 
which was kind of gritty and working class, still always had kind of a, a moral or a happy ending to it. Whereas yep. the Phil Silver show usually ended with a joke rather than a happy ending. And it was all about these miserable guys uh, struggling and conniving. It was seldom about uh, uh, the nucleus of a happy family or anything like that. So uh, Nat Hiken was very unique. And like you say, a lot of those guys did show up later. Uh, uh, Nat Hiken's final project was a movie, which a lot of people think is crap, but I really love, called The Love God, uh, which yes. stars Don Knotts as a Hugh Hefner-type pornographer who becomes uh, irresistible to women. And it's Don Knotts, so it's hilarious. Um, that was Dan, that was uh, Nat Hiken's final project, and one of the guys that's in it, playing the uh, uh, prosecuting attorney, is James Gregory, who's a great character actor who, as you just mentioned, uh, ended up as a regular on uh, Barney Miller when Jack Sue died. James Gregory took his place. Yeah, Inspector Luger, and of course uh, another great moment for James Gregory beneath the Planet of the Apes as uh, <laughs> the the ape general. The only good human is a dead human. Yeah, so yeah. he was very prolific. Yeah. <laughs> tremendous, tremendous character actor, Manchurian Candidate, a million movies for, and, and TV from the fifties, sixties, and seventies. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, great actor, very fun. See again, this is why I wanted to talk to you, Cliff, because you you uh, you know you cover the same territory that uh, when a lot of my guests come on and talk about comic books and stuff, and we right. talk about the the entertainment that we like, it's stuff that's in your book. And the interesting thing is, and the reason why I also wanted to point people to your blog, is I really was expecting the uh, the book to be a collection of your, you know, your profiles on these various, you know, uh, behind-the-scenes uh, comedy people and also the stars themselves. And instead, it really is this this history that has a lot of anecdotes in it, but and, and covers, literally, from vaudeville to the modern day. I mean, you are talking about uh, podcasting right up to, I mean, I don't think I'm spoiling by saying this, and I'll edit if I am, but literally to the death of Robin Williams. So, I mean, you really have a very, uh, from the beginnings of, of American uh, vaudeville to, uh, to today's uh, stand-up world. Yeah, I'd say uh, it's, it's not the book that people are expecting, and I think everybody so far who's got an advanced copy has, copy has been uh, uh, pleasantly uh, surprised. A lot of people did think it was going to be a collection of interviews or previously published work or that mm-hmm. it was strictly going to be about uh, one uh, era, and uh, it's not. It, I mean, it's it's got a lot in there, uh, modern history. It's hard to write about uh, uh, contemporary stuff with any historical context because there isn't enough distance usually. But there is enough distance now from the 1990s, so I have a lot in there uh, in the last section of the book, the history of Late Night with Conan O'Brien, how uh, guys like Louis C.K. and Bob Odenkirk have been very influential in modern comedy without anybody realizing it. Now we all know who Louis C.K. is. We all know who Bob Odenkirk is. Bob Odenkirk, who got his start in Chicago, by the way. Um, you bet. But, but back in those days, uh, uh, people didn't know who they were in the 80s and 90s. So I write... Uh, extensively about what they were doing in those days, how Bob Odenkirk had his name on an Emmy Award along with Robert Smigel and Conan O'Brien as early as 1989. All three of them had had their names on the Emmy that year, even though uh, nobody knew who they were. Same thing with Louis C.K. He won an Emmy for writing The Chris Rock Show, I think, in 95. Um, Again, I mean, this is uh, at least 10 years before he became a huge sensation. So, uh, and I talk a lot about that kind of thing throughout my book, throughout all generations, how uh, anybody who enters comedy is, is, is in for a long, arduous struggle until they finally break through. 
but can be very influential behind the scenes, even as they're failing or moving from one project to another that maybe doesn't quite catch. Um, so that's kind of one of the themes in my book is uh, is struggle, and the other theme is uh, influence. But like you say, it, it uh, covers a, a large, uh, ambitious swath of time, 100 years, but I think it uh, does so fairly effectively. Uh, so far, the response has been uh, very positive, and uh, I've been very flattered by uh, some of the things that I've heard. And apparently the book is uh, smart, which I wasn't sure if it was or not. Um, <laughs> it is uh, smart. Yeah, so uh, I think maybe that when people are surprised, they're, they're like, uh, what they're trying to say is, I thought it was going to just be some dumb, stupid book, and then it ended up being like cerebral or something. I think that's what they're getting at. But uh, I don't know. I got invited to uh, uh, Harvard to uh, speak <laughs> Wow. in wow. November. And then next, uh, next June, and I know nobody's going to believe this listening to this podcast just based on what I sound like. I sound like a fool, but uh, next June, I've been invited to address the uh, annual national convention of Mensa. Wow. <laughs> I'm not joking. Oh Isn't that crazy? So yeah, I think the top the, 2% the of uh, IQs, right? I, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, they also invited me to, to uh, take the entry uh, uh, exam to join Mensa. And I said, no, I don't think I need to know. <laughs> The results of that test. <laughs> I can appreciate that. Yeah. Well, the, the great thing is the um and and really again the blog will uh, let people zero in on uh, on specific uh, people and you get these very lengthy essays that you do on these uh, character profiles. But um, there are great anecdotes in here, uh, great asides that, as you say, you don't realize the connections. I mean, I, I did know about some of the things that Odenkirk and guys like Louis C.K. did before they, they broke through themselves, but I didn't know or had forgotten that he had, uh, Louis had written for Letterman. And it you know, it was brief, but not a big experience, but it did happen. Um, you know, you point out, of course, you know, going back to the old days, uh, Mel Brooks writing for, you know, guys like Sid Caesar. Um, I love each decade has that kind of sea change moment. We mentioned Nat Hiken uh, from a sitcom standpoint, but things like the advent of uh, the modern comedy album, and I guess even modern isn't fair because it started 50 years ago, um, and, and just you know the idea of the Shelley Bermans and the Newharts and the Mort Sauls that, that cut those first records in the late 50s. Um, and there were earlier attempts at you know putting comedy on a record, but not the full performance that we got. And really, I'm, I'm fascinated by that because I grew up with those comedy records uh, especially in the seventies and, uh, you know, buying old ones and stuff from the fifties and sixties as a kid and being fascinated by those. And then just seeing the progression from that to bits on YouTube to Louis CK doing, you know, his, uh, stuff that would have normally been on say a cable channel and him putting it online and charging people directly and stuff. So that evolution of people watching the in air quotes live performance, but, but getting it captured on video or at first, audio and i like i said the record the record era itself just fascinates the hell out of me and you cover yeah, it well yeah well it's interesting there's been different phases so the phase you grew up with the 70s comedy records of steve martin cheech and chong richard Pryor, lily tomlin uh robert klein albert brooks that era of comedy records was a boom in and of itself but it was separate from the boom of the late 50s and the early 60s when uh, Bill Cosby, Woody Allen, Jonathan Winters, Nichols and May, uh, yeah. um, Shelley Bob Berman, Newhart. Bob Newhart, 
were putting out comedy records, uh, that was a, that was the first kind of boom. And like you say, there had been attempts at comedy records before. They were usually, uh, prior to 1956, comedy records were usually novelty records. So they were uh-huh. parodies like Stan Freeberg or wacky music like Spike Jones and the City Flickers. Or if you sure. go way back, they were kind of 78s of uh, radio shows, Sam and Henry, again, a Chicago connection. It was a precursor to Amos and Andy. They used yep. to put those out on 78. And there was a famous uh, uh, routine called Cohen on the telephone that had a, like a Yiddish inflection. So there are uh-huh. those. But it wasn't until 1956 with the advent of Red Fox that a stand-up comedian's act was ever recorded and released as a record. Um, and that changed everything. And a lot of people like to lay claim to being the first uh, comedy record. Shelley Berman, Inside Shelley Berman, was one of the first huge sellers. And you'll hear Shelley occasionally say, yeah, I was the first comedian to do a record. You'll occasionally hear more, well, not occasionally. If you ever talk to Mort Saul, he will tell you, I invented comedy records. Mort Saul at Sunset was the first stand-up comedy record and followed... uh, by uh, Mortsall, the future lies ahead, and, and uh, Mortsall, iconoclast. But it's not true. Uh, they are taking credit for Red Fox's invention. In 1956, Red Fox was the first stand-up comedian to do his uh, act for an LP. And it was for a label called Dudo Records, which was run by this uh, black business owner in south-central Los Angeles named Dootsie Williams. And he and his record labels claimed to fame was in 1954, they had one of the biggest hits in doo-wop, a song called Earth Angel by the Penguins. And that song uh, made the label huge, and it made Dootsie Williams a made man. So suddenly he had all this expendable income. And by the way, it did not make the Penguins made man, and they did not have expendable income. But the guy who owned the record label sure did. And he was able to take risks because he had all this money. And one of the risks he took was signing Red Fox and and seeing if there was a market out there for a comedy record. And he had seen him uh, play a South Central club called The Oasis and uh, asked him if he would do a record. And Red Fox initially said, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to give my act away for free because once people hear my act on a record, if they buy it, then they're not going to come see me live because they have the act at home. But then a week passed and Red Fox was dead broke. And so he came back to Duke Williams and he said, hey, man, do you still want to still want to do that record and so they did he got 500 bucks for it and it was a huge seller it was an underground hit it mostly sold at rhythm and blues record shops around los angeles like dalton records uh Uh it was a huge hit and so they cranked out another one and another one and another one and between 1956 and 1958 red fox had put out 14 comedy records on the market 10 lps and four eps they were all huge sellers but because it was uh, for the black market, it was not charted by the mainstream publications like Cashbox or Billboard magazine. It was completely uh, ignored by everybody but the black community. So wow. when 1958 came around, uh, Fantasy Records, a jazz label from San Francisco, they had recorded Mort Saul's act back in 55, but they never released it because they listened to it and they're like, well, nobody's going to buy this. Then they saw the Red Fox record selling, so they didn't released in 58. But lo and behold, nobody bought that either. Um, but at, shortly after that, Shelley Berman did do Inside uh, Shelley Berman. That came out late 58, early 59, and that was the first hit white comedy record. But because Red Fox's records sold so well, 
over the course of two years, 14 releases, well into the millions. All the mainstream white labels got on board. Warner Brothers got into the act, and they started releasing LPs by uh, Bill Cosby and Bob Newhart. Capital got into the act. They started releasing records by Milt Kamen and uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner's 2,000-Year-Old Man. Verve Records signed Jonathan Winters, Phyllis Diller, uh, several others, Mort Dahl. And all these comedy records started coming out and selling quite good, and it created this enormous boom in comedy records. It's very similar to the boom in podcasts today, where yes. it's almost unusual if a comedian didn't have a record back then, just as it's almost unusual if a comedian doesn't have a podcast now. But it's Red Fox who really is responsible for the genre, and Dootsie Williams is the rhythm and blues label Judo Records. They've never gotten the credit, and that's kind of the history of the record industry, where white labels and white artists capitalize on the black invention and the, the white artists then end up with all the acclaim. And that's the same thing that happened in comedy records in the 50s. Uh, the black label invented it, the black comedian invented it, and the white comedians get all the credit. So my book tries and sets the records straight. It's uh, heavily researched and heavily sourced. And I'll defy anybody to uh, to argue this. <laughs> No, and I, and honestly, I appreciate that kind of clarification. Um, and also, I, I want to point out that uh, it's pretty amazing. You mentioned a guy like Mort Saul back in 1958, and I've been watching him periscope his uh, Mill Valley, California performances uh, the last few weeks or so. And uh, are you aware of that, that he's been doing that? Well, I know he does stuff up at the Thock Morton uh, Theater. I don't know if that's where it's done or not. Um, uh, I have not seen uh, any of those performances, but I know he's uh, he's around. Yeah, yeah, eighty-eight or whatever he is. Uh, you know, yeah, I you know, or maybe even older. I'm not sure, but uh, you know, they. It's pretty crazy watching him sit in a chair and just kind of spin. And, and you know, he's got his stock uh, one-liners that he throws out there as he talks about today's headlines. But uh, it's. It is pretty interesting, and you think back to if anyone has seen beyond you and I, uh, him in his cardigan with uh, the newspaper under his arm as he's just talking randomly about uh, the headlines. I just read the the Bob Hope biography that came out at the end at the end of last year. Yeah, and I and I love that through line as well in terms of when you think of stand up and stuff, and and the biographer kind of credits Hope as really being the father of kind of what became modern stand-up and that it was really prior to that they really you know i mean will rogers did it to a degree i suppose yeah wh where would you put that on the uh, on the spectrum well i think that uh, richard uh, zoglin's thesis i think he has no choice but to start off with that thesis because otherwise there's no excuse to be reading a book about bob hope in the year 2015 you know what i mean <laughs> so i kind of feel like that thesis is a bit of a stretch but i think like it was probably in his original book proposal in order to sell the idea to a publisher that if not for Bob Bob Hope there there would be no stand up and that before Hope it didn't exist. I don't believe that at all because Bob Hope was influenced by guys that came before who were doing stand up, you know? Um one of his big influences was a guy named uh, uh Ted Healy and a guy yes. named Frank Fay. And yep. both those guys also influenced Milton Berle and I talk about both of them in my book. Um, Frank Fay probably has a stronger distinction than Bob Hope as the originator of modern stand-up. However, uh, even less people know Frank Fay today than know Bob Hope, so it makes no sense to write a book about Frank Fay. Um, it, it makes maybe slightly more sense to write a book about 
Bob Hope. But even then, I'm not sure what the market is for the Richard Zoglin biography of Bob Hope in this day and age. And that that sentence is coming from me. I'm I am the audience for that book, and I don't even know why it would be uh, uh, written. But I'm not saying that to slam Richard Zoglin. I'm just being a realist about it. Um, you're not going to interest anybody under the age of 50 suddenly in Bob Hope because you've written a biography about him. So I think that assertion that he kind of is the uh, progenitor or originator of stand-up is an easy one to make because nobody's going to call you on it because nobody knows their pre-Bob Hope history except for uh, maybe a cocky kid like uh, yours truly. So I would disagree, but I would also say that, of course, Bob Hope was extremely significant in the 20th century because he was one of the uh, biggest celebrities. But uh, as we know from our modern culture, uh, being the biggest celebrity does not necessarily equate being the most important artist by any stretch of the imagination. So it's really hard to, to distinguish what he's trying to get at there. And I didn't I have the book next to me. I haven't uh, read it. Uh, somebody lent it to me, and I've been flipping through it. But um, it, it's hard to really define importance. And I, I'm not sure if the subtitle is the most important entertainer of the century, something like that, right? Uh, that's really something like that. It's a really subjective thing, importance. But but much like you in your book, you, you know, he points out too that hope during his prime of the 30s and 40s was this fast comedian. Um, and, and I mean, you know, guys like Woody Allen certainly admired 40s hope. But as you point out as well, it was 60s and Vietnam hope that really, you know, kind of showed his age, uh, didn't acknowledge that, that the generations were changing. Yeah. The, you know, and, and, but, but again, fascinating to go back and look at that stuff. And also, meanwhile, you know, our parents and grandparents were still watching. And again, three channels, those were like the most watched shows of the late sixties and yeah. even early seventies. I don't want to come, yeah. yeah, I don't want to come across like I'm slamming Bob Hope or Richard Zoglin for that uh, no, no. Ma- matter. And uh, honest to God, just last night, I'm one to talk. I went to the uh, New Beverly Cinema here in Hollywood and watched a 35 millimeter print of the Ghost Breakers, starring Bob Outstanding. Hope. Outstanding. So, one of the, yeah, one of know, his good, one of his real good ones. Absolutely, yeah, it's, man. It's a, it's a, it's a hilarious movie, especially if you love. Uh, offensive black stereotypes. This is the film for you. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> You're right, though. That's fantastically bad, but true. Yeah. Oh it, my it, god. It, it co-stars oh. Willie. It co-stars Willie Best, who was uh, the poor man's uh, step and fetch it. When step and fetch it in the 30s started making a, a gazillion dollars as the sort of black stereotype actor, he did all those sort of uh, uh, offensive. Uh, gags that we now equate with that era, you know, wide-eyed fear. Yeah, yeah the yeah. fear, scared or lazy, all those terrible, terrible stereotypes. Yeah. Um, but he was such a popular actor in the '30s, Step and Fetch It. But he started making demands on uh, Fox, the studio that he was uh, working for, and they they severed his contract. Then he started going to other studios, making demands. And they didn't want him either, so they replaced him with this sort of less talented African-American actor named Willie Best, and he's like a less funny version of Step and Fetch It, and he's the guy who co-stars in this Bob Hope movie, The Ghost Breakers. And it's really an interesting uh, um, cultural document for that reason, because Willie Best's uh, part, he's billed like eight or something like that in the movie, 
but he's really the co-star along with uh, Paulette Goddard. He has as many scenes yes. or, or uh, jokes or lines as any of them. Anyways, so I'm not trying to slam Bob Hope or Richard Zoglin, but I am trying to be a little bit realistic. So Richard Zoglin is arguing that he's the most important guy in comedy of the century, and since people don't really know their comedy history, they're probably not going to call him on that. But I'm going to call him on that. I don't, I don't agree. Um, but what I really don't agree on is that there's a market for a book about Bob Hope in the year 2015 because it's really, me, it's really it's tough awesome. to convince anybody of a of a certain age that even comedy from the 70s is uh, is relevant today. So to go back that far, it's even harder. But I try and do that with my books by connecting all the dots. And relating from one generation to the next, how it's like a how influence is like a series of dominoes. How most Louis C.K. fans today are probably not listening to Lenny Bruce and seeing what's so great about it. But if you explain to those Louis C.K. fans, well, Louis C.K.'s hero and biggest influence is George Carlin, and then you explain to them that George Carlin's biggest hero and influence is Lenny Bruce, well, then you can kind of see the connection and the through line, and then it starts to make sense how one guy in one generation leads to the next guy in the next generation. The Bob Hope book, I don't think really uh, does that. Um, I haven't gotten to the, to the end of the book. Maybe it compares him to John Stewart or something because we talked about current no. events of politics, but even that would be a stretch without connecting all the dots along the way. So to say that Bob Hope, like the Big Bang, somehow invented stand-up without giving credit to those, came, uh, credit to those who came before Hope and influenced him, like Ted Healy and uh, Frank Fay, uh, I think is a little bit, uh, I, I don't even know what the phrase is. not disingenuous. Yeah. It's a simplistic view of it. That's what it okay. is. Okay. You know, no, that's fair. Of, so. I respect that. I want to point out that uh, Ted Healy, for people who may not know, was uh, the guy who got the Three Stooges together, and originally it was Ted Healy and his Stooges. Again, I know you know this. Yeah. I'm, I'm providing that for the for the listener. And hey. Frank Fay, you might remember, listeners might, if they like old movies, and a lot of my listeners do, uh, the movie Harvey that uh, Jimmy Stewart did, uh, Frank Fay also toured with Harvey, I, I believe following hey. Yeah, well, no, no, Frank Fay originated the part. He did originate it, okay. Yeah, please. Uh, but Frank Fay was difficult to work with, and he was an enormous uh, anti-Semite who was known for his uh, his uh, hatred of uh, of the Jews, and that doesn't go over very well in the uh, film colony. So when the movie came to be adopted uh, from the Broadway play Harvey, which starred Frank Fay, they went with Jimmy Stewart. Um despite the fact that I think Frank Fay may, maybe even had a Tony nomination. You know, it was a big success. It was considered a comeback for Frank yes. Fay because his anti-Semitism had already uh, uh, burned all of his bridges in the 1930s and uh, early 1940s. He was getting less and less work. And there's a couple movies in the, uh, uh, in the public domain that star Frank Fay, and the reason they're in the public domain is because the only film studios that would hire him were Poverty Row by that point because nobody okay. liked him. But he did originate the part of, uh, of uh, uh, the, the lead character in Harvey. I forget the name. Elwood. Elwood. El- yeah, Elwood. Yeah, Elwood P. Dowd. Yes, there Elwood you go. P. Dowd. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, he originated they, that role on Broadway. But, yeah, Jimmy Stewart did it in the movie. And I, and I want to say Stewart played it on stage as well, which is why I was confused and wasn't sure who did it first on stage. So that, but he that's very cool. well may have, but uh, Faye was the, was the star on Broadway, yeah. Understood. Understood. And he was married, wasn't it, to Barbara Stanwyck? Because I know he used to 
or one of the, I, I, I know too, beyond his anti-Semitism, also a wife beater. So, you know, yeah, there, there are a lot of great, uh, great uh, characteristics <laughs> about uh, Frank. Yeah, he was married to uh, Barbara Stanwyck, and the big, the big famous joke about Frank Faye is that uh, in the early 30s, in the film Colony, everybody cracked this joke, and the joke was, uh, uh, who has the biggest prick in Hollywood? Barbara Stanwyck. That was the joke, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. No, you know, the other connection, well, first I wanted to ask you, because you brought up, and I already forgot his name, uh, uh, Hope's co-star in... Uh, Willie Best. In, yes, Willie Best. Okay, so what about a guy like Mantan Moreland? Because he kind of was in that step and fetch it role as well, but it seemed well, like he well, had more lines yeah. going. I'll, Tell say this, I'll say this about all of those guys. All of them had some talent. And some were extremely talented, but in those days, if you were a black actor in movies, uh, you didn't get any roles uh, unless you were playing a butler or a porter. And even Mantan Moreland, when you see him in some of the big movies, he's in a couple of uh, Abbott and Costello films, he only has one line, you know. Uh, well, but had, the Charlie he had Chance, he had a, well, he yeah, had a lot, of, for, a lot to do with worked, those movies. Yeah, of course. When he worked for Monogram Studios, which is where they made the Charlie Chan movies, then he could co-star. But those were not major studios, you know. It wasn't Fox, True. Universal, Paramount, MGM, uh, Warner Brothers. They did not give uh, black actors those kinds of chances, so they didn't have a, a chance to shine. Uh, I will defend Step and Fetch it a little bit. He's actually pretty funny. There's some unique things about him that that all of his is a, an invention all his own, and it's not unlike uh, uh, Jack Mercer's Popeye in animation. It's this character who says one thing, that, but then mumbles all these bizarre things under his breath that yep. are really quite funny. And uh, Stephen Fetch had improvised most of these funny lines after his dialogue. They were not scripted. Um, and so there was something about him that was amusing. And if you can get past the offensiveness of the stereotypes, and after you watch enough of these films, you... you you tend to get past those stereotypes because you have context for them. So you're no longer shocked. You just kind of accept that it exists. But then you can kind of focus on the performance a bit and the things that uh, Stephen Fetchin is muttering under his breath. And uh, it can frequently be quite uh, interesting and amusing. And sometimes there, there are movies, I can't give you a specific example, but there are movies where Stephen Fetchin under his breath mumbles things that are clearly in-jokes related to the production uh, the names of people behind the scenes, you know, that if you didn't know any better, you would just take for just general mumbling. Mantan Moreland, I think, was the most talented of them all. He was hilarious. Uh, yeah. He steals every scene that he's in, big movie, small movie. He was a scene stealer, uh, uh, one of the great scene stealers of all time. He was also a veteran uh, stage performer. He was in a number of comedy teams. Uh, there's a couple Charlie Chan movies where he does uh, this bit, uh, I forget what they called the routine, but he did it with a guy named Benny Carter, and he did it with a few other guys. But he did it with this guy, Benny Carter, on stage, and he's in one of the Charlie Chan movies where they finish each other's uh, sentences. You might remember this. Mantan Moreland bumps into his friend. He goes, oh, my God, if it isn't. Oh, well, how are you? I haven't seen you in years. I have. Are you still? Oh, no, I quit that years ago. What about, oh, she's fine. How's, oh, he's good. Just they go back and forth like that for yep. like five minutes, never finishing the sentence. And this routine they did in nightclubs, they did on uh, 
the stages of presentation houses, the black theaters like the Earl Theater in Philadelphia, the Apollo in New York, uh, all, all around the uh, Chitlin Circuit and Presentation House Circuit of uh, the East Coast, Mantan Morlin uh, did this routine for years and years and years, and it was very, very popular and uh, technically very difficult to perform. But he was really a talented, talented guy. He had a terrible fall from grace in the 1960s. A lot of those guys from that era did because their style yes. of comedy was equated with those stereotypes, so nobody wanted to touch them or do anything with them. So Mantan Moreland's final performance was in a uh, Gene Corman uh, sexy nurse movie. I can't remember which one. Night call, night duty nurses or student nurses, something like that. And he just plays a wino who's drinking uh, a bottle under a bridge, and they run past him, and then he just stands up and hiccups, and his eyes bug out. And that's it. It's his last wow. performance. And he also did some terrible comedy records for uh, the last LAFF records label in the 70s. He was really kind of destitute and would do anything for money. So he did these three horribly vile, uh, unfunny, just, just viciously profane, dirty comedy records in the early 70s, which are historically fascinating, but really kind of sad when you know that Nantan Moreland was doing it desperately for a check. Uh, he didn't make any residuals because all of his movies were pre-1961 before the... Uh, SAG uh, residual agreement has been implemented. So there was this statute where anybody who made a movie before 1960, no matter how many times it was rerun on late night TV, they didn't get any residuals. And of course, yeah. all of Mantan Moreland's filmography was from the 1930s and 1940s, and they used to rerun all those Charlie Chan movies on the Late Late Show, but he never well, received bet. another nickel, you know? Yeah, no, it's, uh, and, and again, it's stories like this that you have in the book uh, when you mention Laugh Records. Um, just the behind-the-scenes stories of some of these uh, comedy record uh, companies that you know were really just you know lousy, to, and you mentioned it earlier uh, to their performers. In the case of Red Fox, um, sometimes it was an interesting uh, connection. Like I didn't realize I remember buying George Carlin albums in the seventies uh, from that Little David uh, label, having no idea that Flip Wilson was behind Little David Records. That's right. Well, when Flip Wilton uh, became very wealthy with his uh, his variety show, the Flip Wilton show, um, you know, it's hard to tell the difference between a good Samaritan and somebody who's just trying to uh, avoid taxes. Because a lot of the time, guys who make a lot of money, they start investing in all these projects. And you're like, oh, they're giving back to the community. They donated all this money to the hospital. Now it's called the so-and-so wing, or in the case of Flip Wilson, he started a record label called Little David Records, and it was supposed to be like a Davy and Goliath thing to fight sort of uh, the corporate structure. He funded his own record label, Little David, and he signed comedians like George Carlin and Franklin Ajay, and uh, allowed them to do their stand-up back in full freedom without censorship. And, uh, and so when Flip Wilson was doing the rounds, uh, of promotion, he appeared on Johnny Carson and he explained it and they held up that Carson record, FM and AM and he said, yeah, I started this label so Carlin could perform in uh, in full freedom because he's a genius and a brilliant artist and all that stuff and that's all true and great and very noble but at the same time, Flip Wilson was suddenly making millions of dollars and he had to invest it or else it would simply just be uh, wiped out by taxes. So Little David Records was one of those things. It was his company uh, that Flip Wilson started, and it was responsible for the first two uh, seminal George Carlin records, which everybody 
you and sent Carlin into a, another echelon and won him, won him his Grammy Awards, and that was FM and AM and uh, Class Class Clown. And uh, yeah. Pip Wilson also uh, moved all of his recordings to his own label from Atlantic Records over to Little David Records. And uh, Franklin Ajay, who was sort of forgotten, but was like a clever uh, black comedian with quite a bit of success in the 1970s, who recorded for them as well. Um, but uh, by the end of the 70s, Little David was no more, and Flip Wilson had kind of uh, uh, left show business uh, uh, to enjoy his money. Yes, because he, yeah, he was sitting on, as you say, a pile of money because of the variety show and stuff. Uh, you mentioned Franklin Ajay. Uh, the star of a, a great 70s film that featured Richard Pryor and, and George Carlin in small roles, Car Wash. Car Wash, yeah, like, of course. Yep, and and also uh, Neil uh, Neil Diamond's, uh, isn't he Neil Diamond's friend in The Jazz Singer? Is it Franklin Ajay, the, uh, like oh, his... Oh, could uh, be. I've never seen the, uh, the Neil Diamond <laughs> Jazz Singer. I've never uh, been overwhelmed with a desire to see the Well, Neil another Diamond comedy. But I, a very, but I will watch it. Yeah, an unintended comedy, but when you think, uh, my God, what a, what a cast! You've got Sir, Sir Lawrence Olivier as the cantor, the father to Neil Diamond. Lucy Arnaz is his uh, Shiksa girlfriend, right. and uh, I'm I'm reasonably certain that Franklin Ajay is his best friend in that movie. Well, that's definitely possible. Uh, Franklin Ajay did a bunch of weird movies uh, in that uh, period. I guess he had a good agent. He's in the uh, Sam Peckinpah movie Convoy which, if yes. your listeners don't know, is based on a five-minute song that stretched into a 130-minute action movie. But uh, <laughs> W. McCall. Yes. Yeah, a yeah, novelty yeah. song from the 70s about CB radios. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and it's directed by Sam Peck and Boss stars Chris Christopherson. Uh, um, uh, what, what, what's her name? Uh, Bob Evans' is, uh, girlfriend. Allie McGraw. stars Chris Christopherson, Allie McGraw, Ernest Borgnine, Burt Young, and Franklin Ajay is the black uh, trucker in it. Of course, it's the black trucker. Why would I even say that? But uh, uh, they're all truckers in this movie based on a song. But it, again, it seems like strange casting for uh, a, a coffeehouse comedian. Uh, but yeah, Franklin Ajay was in a whole bunch of uh, uh, odds and ends in the 70s. And I interviewed him for my book as well. He's a very nice guy, and he lives in uh, Australia now. Oh, is he still? Does he perform in Australia, or is he, he just does. kicking back? No, well, he, he's both. He's kind of kicking back, but he does when he does perform. It's uh, usually in Australia, and he says the audiences there are, uh, as far as he's concerned, the best in the world. That's fantastic. I no, I was always a fan of his stand-up uh, stuff. He would pop up on Letterman or or Carson in the '80s and things, you know, occasionally. Yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, again, I was I was a fan of his from the '70s. You mentioned the coffee houses, and that's another great thing about this book because, as I say, it starts in the vaudeville age, and uh, you get that. My my fascination is that post-war period of the. Uh, supper clubs that then transition to the coffee houses, and then they uh, transition to the the 70s comedy clubs, and then the 80s comedy boom. But yeah. it's, you know, yeah, the coffee houses, I mean, that is kind of where Carlin and, and Mort Saul and, you know, Woody Allen and Cosby and those la Nichols and May, it, you know, that was their... Uh, you know, kind of hang, although Nichols and May in their case, I mean, they pretty much went from, I guess, the Compass Players, another Chicago thing with Shelley yeah. Berman, yeah. that, you know, they kind of immediately became Broadway, you know, attractions from their from their sketch work in, at the Compass uh, Players. They did, and they, and they of course, still played the uh, coffeehouse circuit as well. It's interesting. Okay. There's, there's a lot of missing links in comedy history that I tried to uh, uh, put together in the book. 
Uh, I think a lot of people know about the coffee houses of the 50s and early 60s, and they were really important for comedians. They were, of course, also important uh, first for jazz musicians and then later for folk singers. Um, But, you know, I mean, there was a lot of, uh, with the exception of TV, there was revolutions in every uh, uh, part of media and culture, almost kind of simultaneously. So the beat generation is the same as the coffee house generation. And the the cliche we see of the beat poet snapping his fingers in a coffee house, you know, it's an exaggeration, but that's where the comedians were playing at the same time. So there's this connection uh, with jazz and comedians, beatniks and comedians, and a little bit later, folk singers and comedians. They were there all, all along with them. For some reason, the comedians in history get swept under the rug Whenever somebody tries to establish a scene taking place in the 50s in a coffee house, there's never a comedian in that scene. There's a guy playing saxophone, or there's a beatnik playing the bongos or doing poetry, or there's a folk singer in the case of that Coen Brothers movie, but there's never a comedian involved. I don't know why. But like you say, all those comedians got their start there, and the first three uh, that were the important ones were Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce, and Jonathan Winters, and together unintentionally just kind of parallel with each other in different ways were responsible for a revolution in comedy that gave us a couple years later, Shelley Berman, Nichols and May, uh, Bob Newhart, Dick Gregory, who's a very important figure in that scene. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. They, they all were sort of following in the footsteps of what Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce and Jonathan Winters did. Now what they did was, a break from the comedians that came just a few years before that were playing Manhattan in the late 40s, playing Presentation House Theaters, and I'll talk about that in a second. But Mort Saul uh, was one of the first guys to go up on stage and break the traditional rhythm of stand-up that had been established up to that point. Up to that point, the rhythm was set-up punchline, set-up punchline. Hey, did you hear the one about the mother-in-law? Turns out there was this guy and the mother, blah, 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 joke. But with Mort Saul, there were jokes in there, but they didn't sound like traditional jokes because the delivery was uh, was different. Earlier in this conversation, you said that Mort Saul would just go up there and ramble whatever off the top of his head, but it's not true. It was actually written and he worked with a writer uh, named Larry Tucker, and they constructed an act for him. But it didn't okay. sound, it did not sound like an act. And that's why it tricked people into thinking he was just improvising or rambling or off the top of his head, which is a great thing for a comedian. That's what your audience, that's what you want your audience to think, that you're coming Certainly. out of it on the spot. You know, it's all an illusion. Um, so Mort Saul was one of the very first guys, if not the first guy, to do that. Now, Lenny Bruce had started in the traditional supper club culture and moved away from it when he saw guys like Mort Saul kind of experimenting because Lenny Bruce knew that he, inside, as an artist, was not of that mold. He wasn't the traditional guy. He wanted to talk about real things. He wanted to talk about himself. He wanted to talk about real life. Uh, And he did. And Lenny Bruce was one of the very first people to do that. And there was this huge paradigm shift around 1953, 54, where the guys prior to them, the Alan Kings, the Jack Carters, the Henny Youngmans, they would say things. Uh, I was thinking, my, or they would say things like, "Did you hear the one about the guy who went to the barber shop?" And then they'd tell you a joke about the guy who went to the barber shop. 
Lenny Bruce, Morsal, these guys came in and they started saying things like, I went to the barber shop and then tell you a funny story about how they went to the barber shop. So I know mm-hmm. that, that may not seem like a big distinction, but it was an enormous distinction. Comedy used to come from a generic point of view. And you'd have a guy like Myron Cohen uh, telling jokes about his mother-in-law. And then you'd find out Myron Cohen has never been married, doesn't have a mother-in-law. <laughs> but that's what you did back then as a comedian. You told jokes about your mother-in-law. Well, these new kids came along, these college-aged comedians, and it started with Saul, Bruce, and Winters, and the floodgate opened of guys who followed, who uh, mined material from their own experience and from their own point of view. Mark Saul did not really talk about his personal life on stage, but he talked about his political point of view without worrying that it may not match the people in the audience and their point of view. But by not worrying about it, what he discovered is that there was an entire untapped audience that agreed with his point of view and flocked to see them and hear their point of view reflected in a comedic way. Whereas previous to prior, every comedian would be too afraid to alienate anybody in the audience. So Lenny Bruce and Saul came along. They were not afraid to alienate. And by doing so, they resonated with a contingent of the audience that previously did not have a comedian who spoke for them. And the third guy in the trifecta, Jonathan Winters, uh, he never laid claim to have invented improv, but he did say he was in the race, so to speak. And as far as stand-up is concerned, that's very true. He did have set routines and set characters, and you can hear those on his records. But Mm -hmm. the records do not hold up the way they should because, really, Jonathan Winters was a creature of the nightclub, and he was at his best when he was freeform, when he could go off on wild tangents. And it's the reason Jonathan Winters never became a television star. He did several TV shows, variety shows, sitcoms, but none of them are what he's remembered for. He's remembered for being Jonathan Winters. And when he shined the best, it was on TV shows like the Jack Parr program, because Jack Mm -hmm. could just set him up with one question, and then Winters could just freely improvised, but usually TV producers and film producers were too nervous. There was too much money at stake to allow uh, uh, Winters to do that on a shooting schedule. So he never really got the chance. And most of those kind of scripted projects he were involved, he was involved in kind of fell flat. But when he did stand up, that's when he was in his element. Uh, but he didn't do it for very long. He didn't like doing it. But if you talk to the people that were around back then, uh, they say Jonathan Winters was, you know, one of the greatest stand-up comics to ever perform in a nightclub. He was fearless, and uh, that was a huge paradigm shift because the guys that came before those three were not fearless. They were the opposite. They were fearful. They didn't want to offend anybody except unless the person they were offending was black or Asian. <laughs> then they didn't seem to care that much. But in terms of the sure. general uh, uh, white ticket-buying public that, populated the presentation house circuit of Manhattan in the late 40s, they played it very safe, Uh, they played it very generic, and a lot of them did the same jokes. They bought jokes from gag writers, so they had to be written from a generic point of view. They couldn't be written from uh, their point of view of life experience, because they had been written by somebody else completely, and then they would just give the gag writer 50 bucks, memorize the jokes, and do them. So it was a completely different approach to stand-up, what was happening in New York 1945 to 1950, and what started to happen in the 50s with Lenny Bruce, Mortzall, Jonathan Winters. And it was very similar what happened in jazz, in literature, with uh, beat culture. It was all tied up 
with that. It was all part of the same artistic movement. And the presentation houses lasted until, in some cases, the late 60s, early 70s. And you have a guy like George Carlin that, you know, uh, early in his career kind of shifted from old school uh, to, you know, ushering in that new age with Robert Klein in the in the yeah. very late 60s, early 70s well, well, and stuff. Well, George Carlin never played a, uh, a presentation house. A presentation oh, house, okay. A yeah, presentation house is a weird phrase. And most people don't know it. And honest to God, I really only learned it while I was researching my book. I had an idea of what it consisted of without knowing what the phrase was. So okay. in, in post-vaudeville years, what happened was all the uh, uh, sort of stages shifted to showing movies. And okay. a lot oh, okay. of presentation houses were built, 1927, 1928, huge theaters that seated anywhere from 1,000 to 5,000 people. But then okay. the stock market crashed. So in 1929, suddenly the stock market crashes, and that's one of the big uh, impetuses for vaudeville also crashing. It died sure. at the same time as the stock market died. Um, so everybody's putting in movies now in these giant theaters. But the way it worked was uh, they didn't just show a movie like they do today. They would have a stage show beforehand. Mm-hmm. It was about 45 minutes of live performers. You'd have an orchestra on stage doing some numbers, then you'd have a, a girl singer come out, sing some songs, then a dance team, maybe an acrobat or a sword swallower, and a comedian. And there's a generation of stand-up comedians that is forgotten that earn their chops doing that uh, uh, presentation house circuit. It was mostly concentrated in the East, but it happened everywhere. But in New York, there were the most important presentation houses, and they have famous names even to this day. The Roxy, Radio City Music Hall, uh, the, the Paramount, Paramount, and then okay. the less famous names, Low State, the Capitol, and all of these theaters were owned by the film studios and showed their specific yep. movies. So obviously the Paramount showed Paramount films. The Capitol and Low State uh, showed the MGM films. Uh, uh, the Roxy showed RKO films. The old Palace Theater from Vaudeville, when it kind of went under, it turned into a presentation house, and it showed RKO movies as well. Okay. And before these movies, they would have comedians. And they really flourished during the war years and the post-war years, all through the 1940s. And the big stars that started as rookies and became stars getting their experience at these presentation houses were Alan King, Phil Foster, Myron Cohen, Henny Youngman, Jack Carter, Dean Martin, and Jerry Lewis. A forgotten female comedian who I talk about in my book named Jean Carroll. These were the big stars that came out of these presentation houses. And these are all the big headliners you saw on the Ed Sullivan show when it started in 48 and really sustained it right through the late 50s. These are the same acts you saw again and again and again doing stand-up on Ed Sullivan, and they were scattered out of those presentation house theaters. And when TV, I see. And when TV started, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but when TV, no, no, no. When TV yeah. uh, started in 1948, 49, 50, all the comedians were guys that came out of this presentation house circuit. Milton Berle came out of the presentation house circuit, had his own show. Jack Carter came out of the presentation house circuit, had his own show. Jerry Lester, a forgotten name, who had the first late night show on NBC, came out of this 
presentation house circuit world, and they were different than nightclubs. These guys were performing for enormous audiences, uh, like I said, between one and 5,000 people, and they would show these movies multiple times a day. There would be up to eight showings a day. Other presentation houses may only have four showings, but it meant the stand-up comic performed four times a day or eight sure. times a day. And if that movie had a two-week run, that is a lot of stage time for a stand-up comedian. And that's how these guys became good. That's how they learned their craft. That's how they became stars. And when TV started up, well, hell, they were ready. They could really carry their own show, and they did. And Sinatra, from a singing standpoint, was was playing those kinds of theaters exactly. as well. Exactly. Okay, so yeah, I'm with you now. Because yeah, when I when when you said that, I assumed that was maybe a, a a different way of calling the supper clubs and nightclubs that that happened in that post war period. And yeah, I'm glad no. you mentioned Martin yeah. Lewis. But no, yeah. I see the distinction now, certainly, because yeah. I was going to ask about the the mob influence that you know was was always part of show business, and yeah. you know. And and that's really covered very well in your book. And also, I didn't realize, again, being a kid and really just sticking with and thinking that I had experienced it watching this and knew what was going on as a kid, didn't realize that a lot of those 70s comedy clubs were probably fronts for trafficking drugs and stuff like that, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, a lot of uh, what I learned, I learned while researching the book, I had a good knowledge of it already, but all the dots were kind of connected as I really dove into it for purposes of, of writing the book. And yeah, uh, according to a lot of stand-up comics in the 70s and 80s, I guess it's no uh, surprise that cocaine was uh, uh, very common in stand-up in the 70s because we have these famous uh, examples of Richard Pryor and Freddie Prince and Flip Wilson and Red Fox, all yes. these guys who were uh, famous for their cocaine use. What I guess I didn't realize was that that carried over into the 80s in an almost bigger way. Because uh, I, I, I associate cocaine with the 70s, with disco. But in the mm-hmm. 80s, in stand-up, when the boom ha- happened, and stand-up comedy and comedy clubs and cable stand-up shows became so huge, it made stand-up comedy what disco was to the 70s. It was now kind of the rock star party mentality with your Sam Kinnison's and your Eddie Murphy's. These guys who, comedians who suddenly had entourages you know, where previously that was only something rock stars did. And comedians sure. who, who were playing stadiums, Andrew Dice Clay, you know, the first comedian to really play a stadium was Steve Martin in the late 70s, 78, 79. So it bled yep. into the 80s. And with that came the rock star drug use, uh, primarily cocaine. Um, and yeah, so there are these stories that a lot of uh, comedy clubs ended up being fronts for cocaine trafficking. And some of the comedians I interviewed talk about that in my book uh, uh gary mule deer who was sort of a 70s comedian who has worked for decades as tony orlando's opening act and uh used to frequently be on late night with david letterman because he and letterman were and are good friends he i was a me, big fan of his i was a yeah, big gary, fan of gary Mule no lie he was kind of he kind of got gets uh, the raw end of the deal because people dismiss him now as just a prop comic but he was a great joke writer he wrote great, great yes. jokes Gary Mule Deer. And um, Gary Mule Deer told me that he's been working on the road while everybody else from his generation of comedians is basically retired. Uh, Gary Mule Deer continues to play the road 50 weeks a year and has wow. done that since the 70s. And I said, God, that's remarkable. You just m- must love performing. And he said, uh, No, Cliff, to be honest, 
The reason is because when the comedy boom ended in 1990, all those other comedians, uh, when God helped and they, and they cleaned up and they stopped, uh, with their cocaine habits. Me, I never stopped. So up until 2008, I had a serious cocaine addiction and I had to keep touring to pay for it. Wow. Uh, which was kind of a shocking thing to hear and a very honest yeah. thing for him to say. And now he's clean. As far as I know, he, he told me he's been clean for the last, uh, uh, several years now, but he continued to use cocaine for years and years and years after everybody else had stopped. But uh, Gary Muldeer also told me that cocaine was such a common thing during the comedy boom in the 80s that, and this is not a joke, this is true, at the Pittsburgh Comedy Club, Gary Muldeer did not buy cocaine from two undercover officers and get busted. He bought cocaine from two officers in uniform because yeah. they were dealing cocaine. They were wow. the Pittsburgh contact for the Pittsburgh Comedy Club. So that gives you an idea of just how accepted and how common it was uh, during the stand-up comedy boom's height throughout the 70s and 1980s. No, and I and I just heard Jim Brooks, uh, James Brooks, the director and amazing comedy writer, and the guy behind The Simpsons and all those excellent movies, and Mary Tyler Moore, and all that television in the sitcom TV uh, that was produced by MTM, Mary Tyler Moore's production company. Um, he was saying about how uh, marijuana was like uh, like not a big deal, and in, in every pretty much every writer's room in the seventies, and that was really interesting in terms of yeah, it was no big deal. Everybody was just doing it. Yeah, I uh, I believe it. I believe it. Well, especially uh, then. I mean, if cocaine was that common, then pot must have been meaningless. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, cocaine didn't have the the track record of uh, of uh, sinister evil behind it yet that it now does. True. You know. Yes. Um, but yeah, that, and that, yeah, definitely a harder, definitely a harder substance. Yes. But, but yeah, I, but... I mean, it's it's interesting. And also, the seventies was the first. Uh, real era of marijuana humor. You know, George Carlin talked about it in his act, to leave a window box is a reference to it. He's wearing a marijuana leaves on a t-shirt on the cover of that. Obviously, Cheech and Chong, obviously, <laughs> Fire Science Theater. There was a lot of yes. uh, pot humor in that uh, in that era. That's true. You know, and it's so funny, the, uh, the amazing, uh, or thrilling, uh, di oh God, thrilling adventure hour, Ben Blacker and Ben Acker's uh, uh, comedy that they do in L.A. Every now and then, I'm like, yeah, you guys are like the Fireside Theater. And they're like, yeah, anyway. And they, they kind of don't want to acknowledge it, which always makes me laugh. It's like, hey, guys, I'm not saying that you're, you're, you're stealing from them. I'm like, I'm just saying that much like them, you know, you, you, you guys are doing this kind of neat, like, fake radio kind of presentation and stuff. You talk about them, uh, the Fireside Theater. You talk about the committee, uh, that, that kind of forgotten group. Yeah. That was doing, uh, you know, really interesting comedy and stuff. No, dude, I, you know, I, I, we're at an hour. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, keep you if you've got things to do. I, I, uh, I, I'm just really, I, I really love the book, and I, and I, and I really want to encourage people to to check it out, and also your essays because, man, I'm telling you, I understand, the, and especially the feelings about the Bob Hope book in 2015. But a lot of your essays really have this intrigue about them as well, uh, in terms of. You know, God, I, I read the Keith uh, Brazil, if that's how you say his uh, last name, the guy who used to uh, produce television, and Jim Aubrey for uh, CBS right. in the in the late fifties and early sixties. And there's just this, you know, kind of. I mean, everyone everyone loves a good mob story, man. And there are tons of them in show business. And you know, you you track those. Joey Ross. I mean, we're not even like doing it justice, and that's good. I'd rather people read 
your excellent essay about well, Joey I do, Roth. Well, I do have a, a mandate when I write uh, history, and that's uh, predominantly what I write uh, these days. But if it's boring, then I'm not going to write about it. I but, hear if you. It, but if the story has clearly got some intrigue, then I'm going to write about it and try and uh, emphasize that intrigue because people will read it then. And with history, generally people are only going to pick up a history book about a topic they're already interested in. But my uh, uh, whole uh, objective is to do the opposite. Where I want to write a book of hi- a history where you don't have to care about comedy or comedians, but if you pick up the book on any page, you'll be hooked and keep reading it. That's really my purpose. So in this book, uh, Richard Zoglin's book about Bob Hope, I could see that it goes into extreme detail about contract negotiations, about raises, about the date of which tour. And that's great for those of us who are completists and and scholars. But honest to God, most of us aren't. And I guess I am, (laughs) but I am very sympathetic to people that are younger than me because I'm younger than most people would assume based on what I write about. I'm very sympathetic to people that are my generation or, or younger. And I was born in the 1980s, so... I, okay. I, I am sympathetic to those who are apathetic about it because it's not made easy for them to care about Bob Hope when you pick up the book and they're talking about Bob Hope's contract negotiation from 1941, how he, he wanted 37000 and they only gave him 35000 It's like, who in the world cares? Nobody. I was going to say, you can swear. You can swear if you yeah, want to. Who the fuck cares? Nobody cares. Um and, and and if anybody cares, it would be it would be me. So when I read something like that and I don't care, then I can only imagine how how little somebody else would care, you know. So when I, I write my that. book, I think about that. I think about what would interest people. So I could have written a completely, I could have told the same history of comedy that I told, using completely different characters and 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 stories uh, to True. tell the overall story. But I chose to use what I felt were the most compelling stories. So, for instance, towards the start of the book, maybe on page 50 or something, I get into the story of Albert Brooks's father. And Albert yes, Brooks, I'm glad. Yeah, yes, the great, the the great stand-up comedian, great filmmaker, great everything. Albert Brooks, there's nothing he can't do and be hilarious at. And his brother, Bob Einstein, who people know as Super Dave Osborne, or Officer Judy from the Smothers Brothers show, or uh, uh, Marty Funkhauser from Curb Your Enthusiasm, Bob Einstein. Yes, it did. They're Absolutely. brothers. Bob Einstein and Albert Brooks are brothers. Some people know that, some people don't. doesn't matter. They're brothers. Their father, this is what people don't know, was a yep. radio comedian and a secondary player on the Eddie Cantor show in the 1930s. He had his own radio show later in the 1940s. But in the late 40s, he became ill. Uh, he had a problem with his back. He had a spinal operation, which nearly crippled him and, and left him confined to a wheelchair. So he couldn't do much performing anymore. Uh, his name was Harry Einstein, and he did a, a character named Parkiacarchus, which was sort of like a pseudo-Greek dialect act. It wasn't really a Greek uh-huh. accent that he did, but it was kind of sold to that. Anyway, so he was the father of Albert Brooks and Bob Einstein. And by all accounts, despite that he's influential in the sense that he gave birth to those two kids, he's not necessarily important as a comedian in the history of comedy. He's not going to be on the Mount Rushmore of comedy. Right. However, right. 
However, when he became confined to a wheelchair, it made it hard for him to get around. And basically, the only performing he could do was Friars Club roasts, bringing around again to the roasts. He could sit at a dais for the duration of the show and then perform leaning on a podium, so it wasn't a strain on him. So that's what he did for the last 10 years of his life. And in 1958, he was booked on a Friars Club roast of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz at the Beverly Hilton in Beverly Hills. Uh, Dean Martin went up, George Burns went up, uh, uh, all these great comedians uh, went up and set the stage for, I guess he was on fifth, Art Linkletter was the host, he brings him up, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a great comedian, Harry Einstein, park your carcass. He goes up to the podium, he roasts Lucy and Desi, he brings down the house, has the set of his career, eight minutes of loud, boisterous, raucous laughter. He goes and sits down. Art Linkletter says, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for him. we got to see Parkey on TV more often. Stand up and take another bow, Parkey. Come on, ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it one more time. Harry Einstein he stands up, takes another bow, sits down next to Merton, Milton Berle, and drops dead, face first into the food in front of a 1,000 people at the Beverly Hilton. Now, it was Beverly Hills, so half the audience is like uh, well-to-do famous doctors. They all rushed the stage and tried to save him. They cut open his chest with a pocket knife or a pocket scalpel, frayed the uh, cord of a nearby lamp, and administered shocks to his heart to save him, but it was too late. Uh, the father of Albert Brooks and Bob Einstein had dropped dead in front of a 1,000 people at a roast of Lucy and Desi. Now, I, maybe Harry Einstein is not the most important character in the history of comedy, but that story, to me, is such a great story. And that story has yes. never been told before in any book or any history of comedy. So I cut out stuff that you may have heard in other comedy history books, like about Jack Benny, your money or your life. That story sure. is not in my book. Sure. But Harry Einstein, the father of Albert Brooks, dropping dead at a roast of Lucy and Desi, that is in my book. So my mandate as a historian is not just to educate, not just to lay down the facts and tell the history, but to make sure that the stories are compelling and that my readers, even if they're young and don't like history, are going to be intrigued and interested and entertained along with suddenly, you know, by osmosis being educated on the history of my topic. And that actual performance is at archive.org and you can find it. And, yeah. and I've, I've I've heard uh, the sound club. I think it. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was there. Did you post it or did, did, did yeah, someone I, else? No, no, that was mine. I put it up there. Oh man, I'm telling you, no, and it is. It's incredible and un unbelievably heartbreaking knowing this as well. And I had only heard of Parky Carcaris because I'm an old time radio fan and had right. read about uh, the Cantor show and also being a Greek American as well. That that's interesting. There was a, a comedian because, you know, there's a million Italian dialects, and Jewish dialect comedians. How many Greeks were there? So that was interesting to me as well. And uh, yeah, I know uh, it's it's incredible to hear. So, no, thank you for posting that as well. And actually, people can hear uh, the thing. Do you, so you've got the link at your website, I imagine, with that Harry Einstein. Uh, yeah, I, I uploaded it to uh, archive.org, and you can listen listen to it there. Or you can go to my website, Classic Television Showbiz. It's the same uh, audio file, but on my website, I've included all the uh, newspaper reports from the next day. The Los wow. Angeles Times, Variety, they give you the blow-by-blow -blow reporter's account of what happened and how they tried to save them. The audio is simply his 
uh, performance that brings down the house leading up to his death. But if you go to my website, you can listen to it and read all the uh, original news reports about it as well. And some photos from the uh, funeral, actually. Wow. And, you know, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of your essays, uh, the Red Buttons one was just fascinating. And again, uh, I guess because I'm a comedy nerd and a broadcast nerd, I mean, I, I just I loved it. I thought it was amazing. And again, you've got uh, newspaper articles to support your essay explaining how, you know, Red Buttons is a guy that people only probably know if they know him at all uh, from those Dean Martin celebrity roasts. And you point out that, you know, he was the biggest star in early 50s television for one season and and how his career – I mean, I'll let people read it – and how his career went from being one of the amazing new finds of 1952 and then by 1953 he was off the air and, yeah. you know, nobody wanted to work with him. Yeah, well, legend has it that he fired something like 50 writers, you know, over the course <laughs> Among of them. two seasons. Yeah. And uh, among them were uh, Larry Gelbart, Neil Simon, and Noel Brooks. He said, yeah. "You guys are bums. You're not funny." Exactly. Yeah, you <laughs> guys don't. You guys don't know funny. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, man. No tremendous stuff at your website, Cliff. Honestly, well, and that's why. Uh, truly, and 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 that's why I, I, we point people to the comedians. Uh, it's out now. And people can order the book. And if you want to do Word Balloon a solid, I've got my Amazon portal. You can go through to Amazon if you'd like through WordBalloon.com and order Cliff's book. Uh, but even if you don't, that's okay. And uh, also, yeah, I mean, uh, I hope people check you out on the book tour. I imagine your schedule will, will also be at your yeah, website. Uh, it will be. I mean, the, be the most up-to-date thing is always uh, Twitter. I'm uh, Classic Showbiz on Twitter. And uh, that's where I... I, I that, that's easier for me because when I'm on the road, I can post uh, through my phone. Uh, blog, okay. My, my Blogspot website, honest to God, it looks so uh, uh, early internet <laughs> that it actually operates that way too. I can't post anything from my phone onto that website. It just doesn't let me because uh, it's archaic uh, uh, software, I guess. But uh, Twitter is the best place. Google my name, click Nesrop, order the book. or Everybody should go, by the way, through the Word Balloon website and order it from Amazon that way and uh, support this fine, oh, fine show. But yeah, uh, uh, I'm not hard to find. You'll, you'll all be able to track it. Well, and, and honestly, I mean, this is out now and it's the brand new book and I, and I know what kind of ordeal it is writing a book and stuff, but uh, I, I certainly hope that there are more to come. So uh, I, you've got a lot of great stories that I think you've found over the years. And also, I mean, I imagine you've done a ton of these interviews. Would you ever put out a podcast of, of your you know, I, uh, well, you know, uh, three years ago, I did a, I made a handshake deal with Mark Marin, and uh, we've kept to that handshake deal, but it has not uh, uh, evolved beyond the handshake. But uh, the handshake deal was just that I don't uh, do a podcast for anybody else in terms, not an interview, okay. but like if I were to do my own, that it would not be produced by somebody else because he wants to produce it. Uh, there's a lot of these podcast networks out, you know, like Earwolf yes. and Nerdist, and they have a gazillion podcasts under their banner. Whereas WTF with Mark Marin is just WTF with Mark Marin. So his uh, idea, I did sit with his, he and his business partner a couple of years ago and hash out a game plan. He wanted to produce a classic showbiz podcast uh, for me, and it would be his flagship uh, spinoff podcast under the WTF banner. So I've always uh, stuck to that handshake, and every time I bump into Mark, he says, uh, yeah, sorry for leaving you hanging there, man. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. Yeah, I'm just busy. We'll do it. So I don't know what's happening there, but uh, apparently, and I did talk to him the other day, and I'm doing a show again uh, uh, next week for the third time now. Uh, Fantastic. Uh, 
I think it is actually going to happen. It is going to happen. The Classic Showbiz Podcast, produced by Mark Marin and his uh, producing partner, Brendan. Uh, but I don't have an ETA for it uh, quite yet. So I would okay. consider it under that uh, species, but I am uh, honoring that handshake. Well, I'll be watching you on, uh, and following you as I do on Twitter and, and looking for that announcement because I really hope it happens, and, and it should. And uh, congratulations on uh, doing these extensive interviews and uh, getting this great information. And because a lot of this would be lost to the ether if it wasn't for people like you. So thank you for preserving this history. And I do think that it is uh, stuff that people would love to read and love to hear straight from the horse's mouth in some cases with these guys. And I know uh, in your book, you mentioned that like Jack Carter is a guy that you came close to writing a, a book with and it didn't happen. I saw his last interview with Norm MacDonald, as I'm sure you did as well. Yeah, I got uh, him that gig. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really? That's fantastic, man. Yeah, was, well, Norm, Norm is a, a reader of mine, and he's been reading all of those interviews I've been doing with Jack Carter, and uh, that's why he booked him on his show. Doesn't surprise me at all. No, that's great. That's great to hear. Well, good luck with the tour. Uh, happy to have you on anytime to, to talk in the future about this stuff. But uh, really, thank you for sharing these stories. And uh, people need to check out The Comedians by uh, Cliff Nesteroff and Again, we'll give you more details as, as we wrap up on the show. But uh, thanks for your time tonight, Cliff. Thanks, John. It was a pleasure. Lots of fun talking to Cliff Nesteroff. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on Word Balloon. It was brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, as always, for your support. And as I said, if uh, you really want to help, uh, Cliff's book, The Comedians, is out today. And uh, it's available at any uh, bookstore, brick and mortar, or online, including Amazon.com. And if you want to help Cliff out and help Word Balloon in the process, you can order the book there uh, right through the Amazon portal at WordBalloon.com. If you go to my front page, there's a tab for Amazon purchases, but also uh, you'll see some ads on the front page of uh, some of our favorite uh, authors and comic book writers that are regulars on Word Balloon. And also there's an entire block in uh, the uh, thing for Cliff of uh, not only his book, The Comedians, but also some of the subjects that we discussed. And uh, all you have to do is uh, click through Amazon there. It's normal Amazon. It doesn't raise the price at all, as I said before. All it does is uh, shave a little bit of Amazon's profit and gives it to Word Balloon, thanking uh, us for uh, bringing you to Amazon. So that's the holiday season. It isn't just the things that I have listed there. Any purchases you make at Amazon, once you go through that Word Balloon portal, uh, Word Balloon gets a few cents on the dollar. So... Uh, you know, it's an easy way, and like I said, holiday season is here. Why not get some uh, early shopping ideas out of the way and uh, do it through Word Balloon's Amazon portal? So uh, that's all. If uh, you have any questions or comments about today's show and more still coming this week, uh, be sure to email me, john at wordballoon.com, or you can follow me at Twitter under at John Wordballoon on Facebook under my name, John Suntress, and, of course, the page, The Word Balloon Network. If you're listening through iTunes, do me a favor and uh, write a review of the show and uh, a rating. That would be terrific. Uh, and as always, the best way to help Word Balloon out is uh, let a friend know that uh, great conversation can be found right here at wordballoon.com, and uh, they might like the same conversation as well. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015.